It is my privilege to bring us back to the King of Glory. He is revealed to us in the 24th Psalm. And as we established in our previous study, what we have here in the 24th Psalm is a sweeping survey of salvation history. This psalm has personal interest to me as a student of God's Word because I detect in it a very effective presentation of all that God is doing. From its beautiful beginning, through its chaotic interruption, and to its glorious fulfillment. Pastorally, this topic is of interest to me, and I hope at this point particularly to each one of you, because once again, in that this psalm presents to us a sweeping survey of the redemptive work of God, the salvation story, I know that the gospel of the kingdom, the message that Jesus came to preach, the message that will open your heart to seeing things through God's eyes and with God's values, that this is all possible for everyone that is gathered here. You might wonder if there could be any among us who are unacquainted with the gospel story, and therefore you might wonder why pastorally I would take particular pleasure in preaching from this psalm. But of course, the answer to that question as to whether or not everyone is adequately acquainted with the gospel story is the question of to what extent each of you who are here and indeed each of the individuals who would hear this message, the question is to what extent are you Bereans searching the scriptures daily in order to receive the message that God has for you as you read and as it is preached so that over time you are maturing in your understanding and appreciation of all the treasures that God is speaking to you about on a weekly basis. But if you aren't the kind of Berean that you really should be, then God will grant you mercy, I believe, this afternoon and through this study. As we've already established in the first study, which we subtitled The Outline, a fitting expression of the objective that we undertook And that objective was indeed to just give you a sense of the sweeping nature of what is going on in this psalm. You'll recall with me that there are three primary sections to Psalm 24. In the first section, verses 1 and 2, we have the categorical declaration. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's as if one is saying, in the beginning, God created. This is the Genesis account. This is when God reveals himself as the great creator. But then these 10 verses work into a new section comprising verses 3 through 6. And we've entitled this section, The Conditional Invitation. We could also call this the temple account. Because what we discover in the third verse is that man does not have immediate access to God any longer. And we know by reading our Bibles that the entrance of sin has brought about this situation. 
The verse presents to us, as it were, someone who is awake enough to God, is touched by His Word and wooed by the Spirit, but recognizes that one must meet conditions before one can be in God's presence. And so the individual in the third verse is, as it were, standing at the foot of Mount Zion, the classic place where God's presence is mediated through the temple. And we know that even the temple itself has divisions within it, so that we're recognizing that even with the temple, there's a relative proximity to God that one can seek after. And God is thereby showing us that the way into the Holy of Holies is not yet available, even though once upon a time, not as a fairy tale, as I will be emphasizing in this study, but once in a real time, historically, man and God walked together in paradise. But now man has to look up to the heights of God. Man has to ask the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can even approach the possibility of coming to the location that mediates God's voice, God's holiness, God's presence? I would remind you that in our era, in a very real sense, that place is anywhere where the true church of Jesus Christ assembles together. The assembly of the Lord Jesus Christ is not some sort of society that you can buy your way into. Where we gather, we are not simply offering seats like one would in an auditorium for anyone just to show up and feel as though if there's an empty seat, they have a right to take it. We certainly hope that hearts will be drawn to God's word and we certainly do make space for those that are unlearned or unbelievers even. But you see, even in that scenario, there is the assumption, there is the implication that the Holy Spirit is at work in those people's lives. But let's focus again on what is happening in verse 3. The would-be worshiper asks, who can ascend this hill? And he realizes that beyond that, entrance into the holy place is also conditional. Who can stand in God's holy place? And we will get to the subsequent verses, that is to say the fourth through the sixth in other studies, and we will hear the antiphonal response from those who guard and protect the holy place, answering the question and telling the would-be worshiper, you must have clean hands and a pure heart. This is certainly not teaching works salvation, but it is nonetheless a qualification for continued experience in God's presence. But we'll get to that in due time. I want to move you now to the third section because we're just reviewing the beautiful way in which this sweeping survey is presented to us. The third section begins in the seventh verse and goes to the tenth and final verse of Psalm 24. And we could call this kingdom exaltation. We've moved from the categorical declaration through the conditional invitation, the temple account. Now we come to kingdom exaltation. We could say the kingdom of count, very obviously. And how does it start? It starts with these words, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. This is not just someone entering into the temple to experience 
a relative blessed time of fellowship with God. Certainly that prefigures that experience and it's relative to what is going on in the third through sixth verses. But this is when the king of glory is coming in. This is when the redemptive story is consummated, comes to its fulfillment. And when the gates and the doors are fully open to let all of the glory of God come back to this earth that sin separated him from. And once again, it will be said, as is being said by the seraphim continually, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. And so again, you are hearing the gospel of the kingdom. And I hope that your hearts will find its treasure compelling and that you will want to be a partaker of all of these beautiful possibilities. And you can do so if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who is indeed the King of glory. My dear brethren, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. For the time is soon coming, I believe, when those very words will be being announced. The time is short. However long it takes, the time is short for your life individually. The time is short for this nation collectively. The time is short for the earth as a human race. Before the words will be stated, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory is returning. Now you might have noticed in that the entire story of God's plan for the earth and for humanity is presented to us in just 10 verses, then it is necessarily done in a way that is elliptical. I will have more to say about that in just a moment. But in order to appreciate how this is working, we need to take up these three sections and to pay closer attention to the points that they are making so that we will appreciate the way in which the three sections are interrelated. That's our task today to begin the process of understanding each section, seeing thereby how they are interrelated so that ultimately the gospel story can come alive to our hearts and see how beautifully it is presented in the 24th Psalm. And so today we will focus on the first section, the categorical declaration. And I'm going to give you as a subtitle to this teaching, the categorical declaration and the categorical denial. Another way we could express this idea is by saying the categorical declaration and the rise of many antichrists. Or we could say the categorical declaration and satanic science. When I use the phrase satanic science, I am not denying that there is a true and legitimate science. But with Paul, I am pointing out that there is a science that is falsely so-called. And as I warm your hearts to what we're going to be looking at, let's listen to the language that Paul speaks to Timothy's heart. He says, O Timothy, in the sixth chapter of the first epistle to Timothy in the 20th verse, keep that which is committed to your trust. There is truth, 
that must be kept, that is worth preserving and protecting. Avoid the profane and vain babblings. We might properly say of the many antichrists and oppositions of science falsely so-called is the way the King James translates it. Antithesius, tes pseudonumu gnosios. You hear in that first word, translated oppositions in the King James, you hear something of the English word an antithesis. And that's exactly the way it's working. It's a contrary argument, a contrary polemic that undermines what the Word of God is stating, that throws a wrench into the gospel story and seeks to render it powerless. But Paul is saying this is a science that is false. But my dear brothers and sisters, I want to say at the outset of this message that I am quite aware of the fact, as I intimated at the beginning of this teaching, that it may be the case that the gospel message does not find a powerful impact into every heart that comes to church. Perhaps some of your hearts are not deeply impacted by the gospel story. And as a result, the situation that we are presented with in the third through sixth verses of Psalm 24 as it relates to the chaotic period, the time in which we are presently living, in which you are granted the opportunity to get things sorted out in your life and to operate in the fear of God and realize that there is a God, but access to Him is difficult to achieve. Indeed, no man can stand in God's presence apart from an invitation from God, fitting into the way by which he can be just and the justifier of they that believe the gospel. In other words, what I'm saying is that the third through six verses tell us about a time frame in which you are presently living, in which there is good news that has come to men that are otherwise in a very chaotic state of life. We could also point to the final section that speaks to the King of Glory's return. But it may be that this gospel story about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Righteousness, who will set everything right, it may not speak as truth to your soul. It may not capture your spirit with deep conviction so that with Paul, you could say today, I am fully persuaded of these things and therefore I commit everything in my life to Jesus and trust him that he will keep these things against that day. And I'm here to argue, dear ones, that it may well be the case that the reason why the two final sections of Psalm 24 which entail the gospel story, are not speaking to your soul is because the first part of the gospel story has been rendered relatively ineffective through science, falsely so-called. Through the rise of antichrists who oppose the categorical declaration. Through what I'm going to call satanic science. Let me remind you of what the categorical declaration is. This is what we're going to be focusing on. Here's our text, Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
There's a parallel remark that the psalm continues with that expands the breadth of our understanding of what is being stated, but it is largely parallel. And it says, the world and they that dwell therein. In the Septuagint translation, the Greek word oikumene is used to translate world. And that term has the connotation of arrangement. And so you see, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. When you reflect on the implications of that remark, one thing your mind should gather to itself is that the arrangement of everything is God's doing. And everything that katoikeo, everything that dwells within the universe on this earth belongs to God. Now, as I've stated, the transition from this categorical declaration to the conditional invitation is accomplished through what we might call event ellipsis. Stated straightforwardly, that means that there are major historical events that are not included in the way in which the story is told. Most notably, the entrance of sin after creation is not specifically stated in between the second and the third verse of this psalm. What we have is sliced off sections of the gospel story. And therefore, speaking of this phenomenon as event ellipsis, I think is quite appropriate. Perhaps you know that the word ellipsis comes from a Greek term that speaks to a shape, a canonical shape. So vision, envision in your mind, if you would, a cone. And what is true about a cone over against a cylinder? A cone comes to a point. And so, too, does God's purpose and plan. It starts broadly, but it comes to a point. And that point, incidentally, is captured in the final section, kingdom exaltation. But as with a cone within geometry, one can take a plane across the cone, as it were, and one can thereby extract an ellipsis. And something that's true about an ellipsis is useful to describe what is going on in this psalm. Unlike a circle, an ellipsis has two focus points by which the entire shape is constructed. To understand what I'm saying here, one could think about a circle as having two foci, if you will, but they are right over the center, both of them. And therefore, the distance to the perimeter is equal all the way around. You get a perfect circle. But you probably know that an ellipsis has two focal points. And so you can think of the way Psalm 24 is working by taking advantage of this geometric analogy because it's very true to what is happening stylistically. Certainly, there are elliptical features to the way the story is told. It is a sweeping story that is leaving out a great amount of detail. That detail is the 66 books of your Bible, if you understand what I'm saying. What enables one, for example, to have clean hands and a pure heart? It isn't stated in this psalm, but 
the broad sweeping modes by which God's gospel program goes forward is stated and the nature of how this is put together is quite effective. So think with me about these elliptical sections. They are able to be constructed because there are two foci. There are two main points that make up the story. What are the two main points? Creation is one. Consummation is the other. Those are the two main points of the entire story. And I do not think, you will pardon this pun if you're following quite closely, I do not think it is stretching things inappropriately. I'm going to present to you a shape that is stretched as is an ellipsis. I don't think it is stretching things inappropriately to make the observations that since we have to have two focuses foci, focuses, I'll pluralize it in that way so you understand what I'm saying, because we have to have two primary points in history as opposed to one, which would be, in the beginning, God created, it was all very good, everything's in the center, everything is centered on God, it's a perfect, perfect symmetrical story, a perfect circle, it's all beautiful, there's no distortion whatsoever, But because of the fact that something has entered into this story that constitutes sort of the middle ground, and now we need two focus points. We need creation, and we also need consummation. In God's mercy, He has good news for men. There will be a consummation. In God's mercy, He had a proto-evangelium that He declared to the human race and directly to Adam and Eve. And when He did that, He put another point in history. He said, I created the first point, you brought in the middle point, but I have a final point. But what I'm stating to you is there's a distortion to the beauty of what God wants to do. And that's how you get an ellipsis, by the way, is when you cross-section some story that has an objective, but you take a plane from that story in some way that involves two points within what is going on. Now, this is, as a matter of fact, the way in which the Hebrew and Greek language itself works. I want to make that point to you because I believe it'll be useful for you to understand and appreciate that these are sensible remarks. These are true to the style and the form of both how Psalm 24 is working and how the Spirit of God is speaking to our lives, showing us once again, as I just stated, I will re-say that there is a distortion that we are presently within in this story, this divine plan. But God is going to ultimately bring all things together to one point in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there'll be a perfect fulfillment of all that God began. As it relates to the biblical languages, let me state that it's quite interesting to observe that the biblical languages are often elliptical. The sentences that constitute your Old and New Testaments are often elliptical. You don't know that necessarily because the translators supply the missing words. But you will notice in the King James, in particular, 
that you have italicized words here and there throughout your Bible. And those italicized words are either showing you that there isn't a particular Greek word on the other side of that English word in the text, and there could be a range of reasons why that would be the case. But often, that italicized word in the original text, in the Hebrew text or the Greek text, is missing. But it is implied. And so, as with this psalm, there are events that are missing in this story, but they are implied. And our objective today is to emphasize the glory of this gospel story as it's presented in this elliptical and therefore concentrated, impacting way through Psalm 24. But I have to make sure that you realize there is a critical link that exists between these sections that is not directly stated, but if you don't supply it in your understanding, you will miss the impact of what God is saying. And so in the Hebrew language and in the Greek language, the most common elliptical feature is when the copular verb is not used. The verb to be, the is, as in English, is not supplied in the text. Take, for example, this remark from a well-respected grammarian, James Moulton. He says, from the standpoint of classical Attic Greek, which is not exactly the koine of the New Testament, but hear his statement, please. From the standpoint of classical Attic Greek, there is nothing remarkable about the extensive absence of the copula in the New Testament. For this was the most common form of ellipse, and except where ambiguity threatened understanding, it was almost the rule. It was almost the R-U-L-E, the way in which the New Testament authors wrote, they left out the copula verb is. I give you one other remark, this from the highly respected Greek grammar known by Greek students as BDF, Blas, De Bruner, and Funk. And here's the quotation. The verb, enai, in modern pronunciation, it would be ene. It's the infinitive of the verb to be, a me. The verb, enai, as a copula, can be omitted in the New Testament, as in Greek, and other Indo-European tongues from the earliest times. Omission is the rule, R-U-L-E, in Hebrew. Now take a look in your Bibles at verse 1 of Psalm 24. It perhaps will depend upon your translation that you're looking at, your English translation. But if you're looking at the King James translation, you will see that the word is, the third word in, the text is italicized. We read it as the earth is the Lord's. But in the Hebrew, that's not the way it is stated. It starts with a divine name, Yahweh, and then it just says Haaretz, which is an awkward way of speaking to us. Yahweh, the earth belongs to. But it doesn't even say that much, actually. In the Septuagint, this may work a bit more effectively in your ears. Here is how the Septuagint translates the Hebrew. Two 
kuriu hege. Literally translated, it sounds like this. Of the Lord, the earth. Now, there's nothing particularly unusual about putting the subject at the end of the sentence. That's often the case in Greek. But what I'm pointing out is it is not to kuriu estin hege. It just says, of the Lord, the earth. Now, all of this that I am stressing to you is not in the interest of helping you to understand Greek grammar a bit better and perhaps stirring your interest in studying the languages. What I am showing to you is that right at the grammatic level, there is a rapidity with which the text works. It works rapidly. It says things in chunks, and it transitions from one idea to the other in a way that the Holy Spirit evidently thought was effective. Of the Lord, the earth. That may not work for you entirely, but when your mind can certainly supply the copula verb in your thinking about what the statement is, then you can also feel the way in which the text is working and marching forward, and you can also recognize that you have to supply understanding to some, in some sense to the way the text is working, right at the grammatical level. I'm using that truth and, and fact to speak to what is more important to my heart, and that is the way in which this psalm is written and the fact that it has what I am calling event ellipsis. It leaves out major events. Now, when you say tu kuriu hege, you have to know that the of the Lord is linked to the earth. And that does not automatically happen unless your theology is sound, because you have to supply the link. And that principle has everything to do with what, again, we're going to be talking about today. And I'm going to be stressing that unless you can supply the link of the first part of this psalm to the rest of the story, which is a summation of the gospel, telling us the entrance of sin, but also manifesting the ultimate consummation in which redemption will be fully manifested in the millennial kingdom, unless you supply the links between these things, they will not have an effect in your heart. And I am quite convinced that it's the absence of our hearts supplying these links between the major parts of God's story that accounts for why not as many who even come to God's house are moved by the beauty of what God is saying. Because one way or another, and here's my point, it's not just about the copula verb not being used. I'm using what I think is a proper analogy from the grammatical level. I believe it's on purpose that the links are missing and you have to supply it. But I'm saying in your spirit, in your relationship with God, with how you preserve the message of the gospel and protect it from vain babblings and antichrist messages and satanic science, you've got to supply the links or the entire gospel story will not have an effect in your life. 
You see, when we come to the temple period, which is the second section, and we will be getting to the temple period in due time, but presently we are looking at the creation account, the categorical declaration. And I know in my heart, until the categorical declaration has a profound impact in your heart that is protected against any categorical denial of the categorical declaration, then you won't understand what the second section is all about. You will not see the link between the first section and the second section, and you won't feel, be concerned about, or be excited about, or be sobered about the link between the second section and the final section. You don't understand the two foci of this psalm. You don't see the circle that God would like to bring to pass in your life that is presently distorted, as it were, as an ellipsis, but as you understand these three main sections, you can bring that creation focus and that kingdom focus back into the middle of the entire story and you can get a beautiful effect of God's perfect plan in your heart. So again, when we get, when we get to the temple period, among the things that the temple period seeks to redeem, do you understand the temple period? The verses that are the second section, three through six. Do you understand? That's the period in which redemption is taking place, cleaning things up, ordering, or I should perhaps state, reordering the universe that has been thrown into chaos because of the entrance of sin. The temple period seeks to redeem, among other things, faith in the creation account. Because apart from faith in the creation account, the rest of the redemptive story sounds more like a fairy tale than the faithful account of truth. I'm speaking to your hearts, dear hearers of this message, and I'm pointing out to you right at this moment that the distinction between whether or not you hear the first verse which says the earth is the Lord's, which harmonizes with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, and He created everything that there is. The distinction between whether when you hear that, even when you're in church, when you think of that, even when you read your Bibles, and it comes to you more in the mode of a fairy tale, something like once upon a time in a garden far, far away, a being named Elohim shaped a man out of the dust and breathed life into his nostrils. And you're something like, well, I know that's what the Bible says and that's what the preacher's all excited about and I know that's the story and I'm not exactly saying it's not true, but it doesn't really hit me. It's, it's sort of in the fairy tale world. Like, maybe it's okay. Who knows what happened? It doesn't come to you like a categorical declaration. It doesn't sound like Bereshit bara Elohim. It doesn't sound like in the beginning, God created. And I want you to know that the reason why that phenomenon exists in the human race and in the churches is because we're in the middle period where the sense of God's presence is not readily available to just anyone. 
where most of the universe and most of the conversations and most of the public squares and even most religion is in a chaotic state in which the voice of Satan is truly more prominent than the call of the sacred text. Listen to what is said in Hebrews chapter 11. It tells us by faith we understand. Now, there will be more that I will say than this simple remark as we work through this material. But initially, I want every one of you to hear this. Hebrews 11 and verse 3 does not say by science we understand. It says by faith, not just by faith we are willing to embrace a fairy tale, not by faith we are willing to put up with the myths that constitute our religion. No, it says by faith we understand. We arrive at true understanding, but we do so fundamentally through the exercise of faith. We understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. I'm asking each of you here today, I'm asking all of the hearers of this message, is it the case that you believe that the worlds were framed by the Word of God alone, straightforwardly, such that the things that you see, you know, were not made of things that were previously visible? Creatio ex nihilo. The idea that creation occurred out of nothing. The teaching that matter was created and is therefore not eternal. Hebrews 11 and verse 3 is stating that the understanding of all of those things is gained through faith. Is that the faith that you have today as you gather in the house of God? Is it a truth in your soul that is so solid that when you hear the first verse, indeed the first clause of Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's, that that comes to you like a freight train of powerful, blessed reality. The earth is the Lord's and your head is cleared up and your mind has understanding and your posture toward this present chaotic situation is already sorted out for your soul because you pull yourself right to the center and you know this earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, the arrangement and everything that's in it is the Lord's. Do you recognize with me? the seriousness of what the sixth verse of Hebrews 11 says. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. I'm going to be arguing this afternoon, and no doubt we'll be revisiting these remarks in subsequent studies under this teaching of the King of Glory. I'm going to be arguing that if you don't believe that God is the creator and that he created this universe in just the way that he reveals it to have been done in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in particular. If you don't believe those things, you are not pleasing God. And I will be 
showing to each of your hearts what is perhaps not problematic for anyone gathered here presently. And that is that within the churches, the clear, solid, absolute conviction that God Almighty created this universe in just the way that Genesis reveals him to have done so, that their minds are foggy, that they are uncommitted to that truth. And my concern is even if you aren't actively opposing that statement of reality, that you nonetheless live within the milieu within which the categorical declaration is categorically denied, in which the categorical declaration is competing with the rise of many antichrists, in which the categorical declaration is opposed by what we could call satanic science. But I'm going to read to you again, the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God, because the one that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Wherever you are today in the churches of Jesus Christ, I hope you understand that you too find yourself at the point of verse 3 of this psalm. You too have to ask every day and every Sunday. You cannot take this for granted. You must examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You have to ask, can I ascend the hill of the Lord? Can I truly be a part of the program of redemption in which God is putting things back into divine order and he will welcome me in particular into his kingdom? The question is, is do you believe the first verse just as it's said? Because if you don't, my Bible says it's impossible to please God. Yes, I am stressing these things with a degree of strength. And I do so on purpose because the ministry's calling is to cast down arguments in every high thing that has intruded itself into God's universe and exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Let me tell you something that is absolutely true. And this statement represents a good summary of the Bible's story. It is not taken at least to my recollection, from a comment on Psalm 24, but it does the same work that Psalm 24 does. It gives in a short paragraph a sweeping statement of the Bible's story. And therefore, you can hear the gospel. Dear heart, do you want to know what this is all about? Do you want to know what the Upper Room Christian Assembly embraces as being the truth of our existence? What is our existential truth? What are we, what are we living in the midst of? What do we embrace and commit ourselves to and, and drives and motivates everything that we do? This is the truth that I'm committed to. Hear this from a reformed scholar who says, Christ, the Son of God, through whom the world was made, came to bring redemption. That, of course, is somewhat elliptical, in the way he's telling the story, because he didn't state specifically that sin entered into the world that Christ created. But you can supply that in your own understandings. Allow me to continue with his statement that captures the redemptive story. This Christ, this Son of God, who made the world, he came to bring redemption. The restoration of righteousness 
and God's kingly rule wherever the effects of sin had touched the creation. Not only does he uphold the entire creation, he also restores it to its condition of wholeness. Now, every one of these remarks are indeed supported by passages from this Reformed author. We will be supplying our own passages as we work through this study, whether today or in a second treatment of this particular subtopic within our study. But my heart just rises with magnetic attraction to this statement and what it's presenting. Listen, if you don't mind, yet again, he talks about Jesus, the Son of God, who made the world. And now he talks about redemption coming into the process. Do you not see with me that he's transitioned from verse 1 and 2 into verses 3 through 6, which is the time frame in which redemption is occurring. And listen to what he says, the restoration of righteousness and God's kingly rule. How many of you know that the kingly rule of the almighty God is not something that is commonly witnessed in the present arrangement, the present oikumenu of the oikumene of our time? But I'm saying to you that this question of who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, who can stand in his holy place, while on the one hand it is recognizing the separation that has happened between God and man, it is also recognizing that not everyone is interested in that question. Not everyone is asking that question, dear brothers and sisters. But it's also showing that there is a place within which we can find God afresh. Who do we find? We find the King of glory. Who do we find? We find the creator of everything. Who do we find? We find the one who is going to someday soon return back to this earth and it's going to be universally vocalized and we will say, lift up your heads all ye gates and be lifted up ye everlasting doors for the King of glory is returned a universal, magnificent reduplication in some respects to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, if you're understanding what I'm saying. But there it was on a donkey. There it was only moderately welcomed. Here it's an entire different story. And I'm trying to say to you, you either understand what I'm saying right now, it either reaches your heart right now, or you don't really understand the gospel. I'm not thereby stating that your life is all washed up and you should go somewhere else. But I am saying you need your life to be more and more washed by the hearing of God's word. I'm saying you need the incorruptible seed of the gospel to get down in your soul. I'm saying that we're going to help you out by using the sword of the spirit and cutting off the imaginations that exalt themselves. As I'll be proving to you in a moment, the antichrist voices that set themselves up like God and try to steal the story so that you don't feel what God is saying to you. And as a result, you don't have basic faith in your Bible. That's why churches aren't filled to capacity. Because people don't have basic faith 
As we heard in the reading of Ecclesiastes 12, they don't understand what the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his word. Why? Because he's coming back and you're going to give an account for everything you've done during this chaotic period, whether it be good or bad. And your life is going to run out just like the lives out there that are running out hourly, day by day, moment or minute by minute, people are dropping out of this cycle of life. And yet there's a gospel An invitation to come to be with Jesus, not just in this church. As I've said before, your bodies in some respects, in a true respect, I don't mean to limit the respect, but I'm just saying in a slightly different configuration, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You walk around all the time with a location within which you can find God. But if you do whatever you please with your body, when you stand at the foot of the day, seeking to ascend into God's presence, every day you're at the foot of Mount Zion, in a sense, brothers and sisters. You know, I mean, you can vary the analogy. You can say, well, not me. I was up all night praying. Well, praise the Lord. Then that's great. But someday you're going to have to sleep. And you're going to wake up again. And there's a sense in which we have to keep revisiting. Can I ascend the hill of the Lord today? Can I have fellowship with God? You know, the answer is you can There is a location within you, if you're regenerated, within which you can commune with God, if you'll do the work of ascending. But don't bother trying to ascend when you got unclean hands and an impure heart and your lips are not kept from guile. You've got to get those basic things straightened. I know people walk up anyway. I've already told you, Uzziah went into the temple of the Lord, right where God stands, and sought to do what he wanted, like an antichrist. He sought to set up his own kingly power where God alone should be consecrated, and God put leprosy on his life, and the sacred protectors of the holy place of God ejected him out of that space. And in the best case scenarios, that's what should be happening. Among other reasons, if we don't do this, there will be no sacred space. What if God doesn't spare the unnatural branches? What if he just decides, I'm not going to spare these Gentile churches? What if he decides, I'm not going to spare these American churches that have been grafted into the root and fatness of my gospel, but have themselves grafted in all sorts of strange vines, and I only discover wild fruit. What if he decides I'm not going to spare the natural branches either? I'm going to take up the position that I once spake concerning Israel when I said to Moses, step aside, I'm going to destroy the whole thing. Do I think that's going to happen? No, but only because of the faithfulness of God. And what I'm trying to say is that conversation that I just had with you is far more meaningful to me than all of the claims of the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. All these claims that use the Bible and church attendance like it's some magic charm that you can just repeat the incantation. Where's your faith, my brother, my sister? Where is your faith in God the Creator? How deeply does that hit your soul? You see, the question, dear brothers and sisters, is what happens to your faith if all of the ideas that are presented in Psalm 24, 
The ideas that God is in the process of restoring righteousness incrementally to individual lives so that they can be participants of his righteous kingdom. Are you understanding me? Do you know the gospel, my friend? Do you know what John chapter 3 says? Do you remember that Jesus said to a religious leader, a man who was leading the lives of the would-be followers of Yahweh in his day, and he did not understand that entrance into the synagogue is not the same thing as entrance into the kingdom of God. And entrance into a church or the opening of the leaves of your Bible or the spreading of your hands as such to God does not constitute an entrance into the kingdom of God. You have to be born again or you will never see his kingdom. Who can be in God's kingdom? I plead with your heart, only those who understand what the conditions are to ascend into the precious places where you can meet the living God, even in this chaotic period. And you can ascend by hearing the gospel that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you will believe that this God who created all things and is telling you why life is the way it is, why you struggle, why you feel depressed, why you are riddled with sin throughout your life, it's because the creation has been set into a state of sinful chaos. But there is a redemptive answer to this situation. And you can open your heart, you can open your mind, and you can spread clean hands and a pure heart with respect to what you can presently bring before God as opposed to resisting as opposed to just being satisfied with repeated religious service you can bring the cleanest hands and the purest heart that you can muster and you can lift up your head you can lift and open the gates of your heart And you can ask the King of Glory to come in knowing that it isn't the eschatological consummation and good thing that it isn't because if it were, you likely would not be a part of His kingdom at this point if you're not regenerate and walking with God and seeking His presence daily. Brothers and sisters, I'm saying to you, what happens to our faith if all of these ideas, the need of the temple account, the coming kingdom exaltation, if all of these ideas are undermined by the rational weapons of satanic science. I'll tell you what happens. This psalm never gets off the ground in your heart. It doesn't put the wind in your wings and help you to not grow weary in this day of utter lawlessness. But you can run with the horses You can stay up with the Spirit of God, but you read Psalm 24, among other places in the Bible, and you read it afresh when you look at all that's going around you, the chaos maybe in your culture, in your country, perhaps even in your home, and you look at that and you say, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Every arrangement is overseen of God, and presently He is inviting those who can hear His voice to come into His presence and experience the purifying work of holiness, which is the work of removing all the chaos out of your life. That's what it is. You're addicted to chaos. 
You can get addicted to the very sins that bind you and destroy you. But you're not going to get healed by going to the AA meeting. You're not going to get healed by going to some religious society that just preaches self-help. You're going to have to ascend the hill of the Lord and meet God in the Holy of Holies and be ready to clean your hands and purify your hearts, to be afflicted and mourn, to humble yourselves before the King of glory so that in due time He will exalt you when He returns. And fundamentally, as we will be arguing, as we continue these studies, as the Lord allows in the Sundays that He gives us or the occasions when we can minister His Word, we're going to be presenting to you the work of the many antichrists, the satanic science, what I'm calling the modern myth movement that attacks verses 1 and 2 of the entire beautiful salvation story. Because if that can be bombarded, if that structure can be weakened or collapsed altogether, then it's no wonder that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of glory, doesn't thrill your soul, doesn't send a shiver down your spine knowing who He is and that He is coming again.